On this episode, Aaron and I are going to be talking with Dr. Marcus Lashley and Dr. Will Goldsby, who are the hosts of the Wild Turkey Science Podcast. These guys are wild turkey experts, and on their podcast, they focus on educating landowners, land managers, wildlife enthusiasts, and hunters like us about how we can help turkey populations across the country. This is a topic that everybody at THP is more and more excited about every year, and we're excited to have these guys on because they're a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the wild turkey. And speaking of turkeys, we've teamed up with Vortex to give away an all-expenses paid turkey hunt with all of us at THP. Aside from hitting the turkey woods with all of us, lodging, licenses, Vortex gear, and $1,000 for travel is all included. The hunt will also be filmed for a future episode of the Turkey Tour on our YouTube channel, and entering to win is easy. All you got to do is head to thp.vtxnation.com, enter your email, and you're done. Make sure you stay tuned to Vortex and THP social platforms for more information, and be on the lookout in upcoming THP Turkey Tour videos, where we'll also be sharing the link. Good luck to everybody that enters. Also, our friends at Go Wild are going to be at the Great American Outdoors show from February 4th through February 12th. You can go see Go Wild at booth 412, and if you wear a Go Wild hat and show a team member, you'll also get a free gift. At their booth, they're going to be handing out stickers, selling brands like Garmin, Vortex, Tacticam, Trophy Line, and a whole lot more. The team will also be there to answer questions about Go Wild or the gear that they have to offer in the booth. So again, you can find Go Wild at the Great American Outdoor Show, February 4th through February 12th. All right, guys, let's talk turkeys with Marcus and Will. Before we get to these three million questions that we got for you guys, I, I want to heavily plug your podcast, Wild Turkey Science Podcast, because as soon as you guys launched those episodes, I listened to every one of them. Um, oh, man, what like a compliment. One after another. Yeah, and I've yeah that is a huge compliment. Yeah, I've went back and I've listened to like different sections of them. And we're going to get into all of the, we'll get into the weeds in a minute. But the thing that, and Zinger, you can probably attest to this. The thing that I'm noticing about the turkey science community, if you will, the research community, is that I haven't met a single person I don't like. Like, <laughs> I, seriously, like from the two of you guys. Mike Chamberlain, all the grad students, Brett Collier, Craig Harper, um, Adam Butler. I know him. He's a super good dude. Mm -hmm. Across the board, a lot of these humans that are doing this work are just really awesome people. Like Mike Byrne up here in Missouri, his grad students at MU. Um, everybody across the board that I've met, that I've talked to about the about turkeys is like, super passionate about turkeys and you guys have a way of communicating with each other that i think is is a is a huge emphasis point for me and that's not something that we talk about often when we get into the science we start talking about the details and stuff but the way that you guys are able to communicate with your peers and disagree and agree on some things but in such a professional manner i think it sets a tremendous example for us as a just turkey hunting community period yeah because well, I, it, you, you know you, I are, think... you guys are, i know that you're going to undersell this marcus but you guys <laughs> are really good communicators when it comes to putting forth this information yeah well i i really appreciate that and, and uh you know it's a real compliment but what i was going to add is one of the things that unites all of us in that passion is because we all grew up 
just obsessed with turkeys right. and, and yeah. other species as well, hunting, but all of everyone you named, we, we all, we're all in it because we all love it. And, you know, we want to give back and, and, uh, we realize that we may not all agree on which hypothesis is best or whatever, but all of us at the end of the day are hunters and, you know, we want to do what's right for the species that got us here. And, and uh, also, I think it helps me resonate with the people that want the information because they're all hunters for the most part. Yeah, that's a conversation that Marcus and I have had a lot is that even though we may disagree, you know, with other scientists and with other hunters, um, at the end of the day, we all want more turkeys. Now, we may have some different ideas and we may interpret data differently on how to get to that end. But, but we need to be united in that goal. And like, even when we're having these online conversations, you know, in comments or whatever, I think, I think it would benefit all of us to try to remember that, you know, that we're all trying mm. to work towards that same end. And, um, we need to have these discussions out in the open so that we can, cause that helps just progress things forward. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's so positive, man. I, I just, every time that we've met with students, even, um, they're all so positive, like, everybody in that whole group is trying to solve problems. Mm -hmm. They're, they're not sitting around complaining about them. They're, they're actively trying to solve these things and, and understand the birds and turkey hunters better and our impact mm -hmm. on them. So I, I just think it's awesome. And if, if anybody is a turkey enthusiast, whether you're a hunter or not, you should be listening to this podcast because there's so much valuable information in there. I mean, I've, I've been talking about this stuff, for the last few days with all of my buddies um since i since i've listened to your all's initial what do you got four out now is that right there are five yeah, yeah. you got to introduce yeah, there's a podcast and then yeah and then there's another one dropping tomorrow morning uh that Wait. we were we got a lot of feedback and we wanted it to be a conversation and we got lots of questions so we felt compelled to do a bonus episode so we've even got an extra one coming out this week uh awesome but, same kind of deal. We've gotten so much positive feedback and people are so engaged and hungry for the information. They've got questions. They're they're questioning some of the things that we said and sending us data. So we just, you know, we just use that to go right on back into it and, and uh, try to be really, you know, we're trying to be open and transparent and have a conversation. And we know that uh, people out there have differences of opinions or or don't understand something or whatever. And so we're going to have, even have an extra episode because of the feedback, which is what we wanted. Yeah. And and to add to that, I mean, these conversations that we've been having among scientists, this is nothing new. I mean, we've been having these uh, for, you know, as long as the field of, of this study has been around. Um, but the public hasn't really been privy to that. You know, these are conversations that we have at conferences when we're sitting around a hotel room or, um, you know, at, at a dinner or a banquet or whatever, that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, the podcasting medium has really opened up an opportunity for us to share those with the public and, and to see, you know, kind of how the sausage is made in the sense that they see these ideas evolving over time and understand that they're just not, you know, all that cut and dry. Yeah. I think that just kind of adding to one point to that uh, is there's a lot of context that goes into all of this discussion that, when you only get little pieces of it, you don't necessarily understand that full context. And, uh, you know, we have all these conversations and they're kind of hidden and it hides some of that context. And I think that's one of the real issues. And, and it's in some cases causing division 
between people who all have a common goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't, what? the the difficult thing is outside the podcast medium, it's difficult to convey that context. Like in just mm-hmm. a social media post, you know, you only have so much space to explain all the nuance related to, you yeah. know, whatever piece of information you're trying to share. Yeah. And, and the negativity that I generally get on social media is people point out that I left out part of the context. And it's like, well, I can't put all of the context in every post, but that's what we're posting on all these things. We're trying to we're trying to give you everything, but we can't do it all in one post. But that's always yeah. the negative part is, yeah, you forgot this part of it. And it's like, no, you're right. And that's why we made the other post on that part of it. You know, we're we're trying to trying to get it all out there. But man, it's difficult on social media. Yeah. I'd say we can uh, relate. Oh yeah. yeah I'm sure you guys can. that. Um, what topics have you guys covered thus far? I I know what the answer is, but why don't you all share that? And then that can kind of spur our conversation in the details here a little bit. Well, um, the ones that are already live, uh, we, we focused, we were trying to focus specifically on season frameworks, trying to understand the current data on that topic and whether or not, uh, hunting, is playing a role to what degree. And then, you know, we have some, we also presented the first science, uh, the first presentation, at least that I've seen of some of the data sets that are being worked on right now. And they have years of data. And uh, one of those was from Mississippi. And we talked to Adam Butler and he kind of gave us a rundown of, of their preliminary data, uh, which I say preliminary because they haven't finished all the analyses, but they have years of data after manipulating season dates on on several WMAs and replicating that. And uh, then the Tennessee study uh, that was with Craig Harper, and it's hard to get the to wrangle these guys in, but in particular him because he's so knowledgeable about so many things, and and uh, he just lays out he just lays knowledge bombs out over and over, and you get you get you know spread out, but. Uh, yeah, we were trying to cover that experiment because that is one of the largest sample sizes and one of the best experimental uh, replicated experiments on or, or addressing season date frameworks that we have. So they manipulated the timing of the season in some counties and they have it in a before after control impact design that's very strong and they have already tracked hundreds of hens. I think it was uh, maybe they're over 600 10 years now and and hundreds of nests and trying to look at how the season frameworks affected you know the vital rates that they were tracking and and those two studies are really complementary because they also were tracking the population responses in very different ways that were complementing each other so and then we talked uh, with Dr. Mike Chamberlain as well who has really done a lot of work um, across many states and many parts of the range of turkeys and has worked you know, for, for decades on turkeys. And uh, we, we wanted to talk to him and really try to understand what are the potential things that, that we could be worried about with hunting, whether it be timing or, or uh, hunting pressure or anything, and what would be the symptoms of those and what would we expect to happen if, you know, moving seasons or whatever actually works what what would we it's like what would be the indicators of that so that we don't have to wait you know 30 years down the road to understand you know whether or not moving it worked 
and with the with the season frameworks, um, kind of lay that out um, ten thousand foot view for us. Basically, are we trying to uh, or are some states trying to move the season dates back to coincide with uh, the breeding of the bird and uh, nest initiation and all those things like is is there it, at least that was my interpretation listening to those podcasts is there may be a positive effect on turkeys if we move the season date back further so that it allows them to I guess uh, nest or breed in a more natural fashion without being interrupted by hunters that's that was one of the topics discussed correct right yeah so so kind of the the 30,000 foot view of that is that, you know, there's, there's been some discussion among turkey biologists, you know, even going back several decades about this complex mating strategy that turkeys have where there's hierarchies of hens, there's hierarchies of toms. Um, and then there's even, you know, like within toms, there's even social groups of toms that have hierarchies among each other. And then within that social group, there's a hierarchy as well. And so the thought is that, the most dominant bird in that hierarchy within a social group is the one that the only one of that group that's going to get a breeding opportunity. And then the larger social groups of males secure more that the the member, the dominant member of that social group is the one that breeds the most. Um, But we also have the same thing going on with hens where the most dominant hen oftentimes gets the pick of the Tom that she wants to mate with. And she gets to do that first. And so one of the ideas behind trying to move back season dates um, to coincide with nesting and allow most of that reproduction to occur is that if you kill some of those birds, you upset that hierarchy and there may be this shuffling and, and, you know, basically some time lapses uh, from the time that that bird is removed to the time that the social hierarchy is sorted out again. And if you repeat this process over and over again, what that ultimately may lead to or the concern there is that you'll delay the onset of nesting activity. Um, and then there may be some associated changes in weather and vegetation over that time period that could lead to, you know, maybe decreased nest success rates or decreased poult survival. And then there's also some, some concern that, you know, maybe that bird that was dominant is the one that's securing these breeding opportunities for a reason. You know, maybe, maybe he has a better immune system. And he's better able to fight off some of these diseases that we're talking about in the context of turkey populations now. Um, so if you take him out, you've potentially taken those genetics out of the gene pool. And uh, you all right there, Marcus? Yeah, lights again. out. This discussion is lights out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so boring that the lights turned off in there. The, uh, no, but so anyways, you know, you don't know what genetic attributes you're removing from the gene pool when you remove that bird that these turkeys have decided is the one that should, should secure the most, the, the greatest amount of breeding opportunities. So um, as far as what we know and what we don't, we know that this is a social system that occurs. We know that th- these dynamics between individuals are in play. What's less certain and what's less settled in the science and kind of what this episode series centered around is whether or not that is actually having population level effects that we can document. Yeah. And in yeah. those Tennessee studies and the Mississippi studies, they didn't see a tremendous mm-hmm. difference. Was that correct? Yeah. And so that's one of the key, one of the key things that they focused on in that Tennessee study was uh, timing of nest initiation 
and timing of nest incubation, because those are the two primary vital rates that would be likely to respond if that mechanism is in play, basically delaying onset of nesting, delaying onset of incubation. Um, if the upsetting of that social hierarchy is, is uh, playing a role there. Yeah. And I, I was going to add um, to, to what Will's saying that there was kind of surprising to me because th those things I would expect to respond relatively quickly and I think it's also important that, that we'll just point it out that there is uncertainty. Like these are hypotheses. There, there are other hypotheses ex to explain why we're seeing a turkey decline. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to go through all of those and, and basically lay out what, what do we have? What is a hypothesis? Do we have data on the hypothesis? Where are the, you know, where are the holes in the data, that sort of thing, uh, and we wanted to lead out of the gate with the hunting season frameworks because that's something that affects every turkey hunter. Mm -hmm. sure. And and that we we came out of the gate with that. That's a, that's a hot topic for a lot of reasons, but it's also something that affects everybody. And uh, we got the you know the biggest names in the business that are doing the work directly relevant to it on the show to talk about it directly because of that. And another aspect that I think is really important, and it, and it was illuminated in multiple of the conversations, is there, there are two sides to this season framework thing. One is the demographic effects on the turkey. So are we, you know, are we affecting their, their reproduction? The other side to that is hunter satisfaction. So what, the way that we set things up you know, we need the hunter satisfaction. A lot of the funding that's going into conservation efforts on the species are coming directly from that, you know, from the people. And and we know that and we want to main, you know, we're trying to balance these things. You've got to maintain hunter satisfaction and interest. We commonly are trying to make sure that we're recruiting hunters so that we maintain that interest into the future. And, uh, you know, that ultimately sustains that species into the future and we have to balance those two things and that's something that came from the conversation uh particularly with adam that i just i, I was not thinking about is even if we didn't have a we don't have a strong biological reason to move it they did see some increase in hunter satisfaction from the mississippi study because when they opened the season all the birds were still there None have been taken yet, and when they opened, they were on fire. They and, were prime because they opened. They open one of them in their their typical time frame, mid March, correct? And then the other one they opened yeah. two weeks two weeks. Yeah, later so that that, that was happened. one of the really great things about that study design is that it had a paired control. So they have a WMA that they manipulate the season on, and then a paired one that they have, have as a control that they don't change anything. And then they had that replicated multiple times and. You know, I think that that's one of the reasons that's such a powerful design is because you know how things change relative to what is usual. So you have that paired control, and that's critical. And you know, it's hard to do with uh, something like turkeys, but that design was excellent. And that was one of the take homes that that he had for it is that the hunters did hear more gobbling. There weren't more turkeys. They didn't respond demographically based on what they can tell so far, but 
when they opened the season, people heard more gobbling because there were more gobblers when they were on fire. Yeah, and that and, was the later of the two. Yeah. Right. And to add a little bit more detail to that, um, in the Mississippi study, you know, they although they delayed the opening date, it was still about two weeks before the peak and the initiation of nesting. So it was still fairly mm-hmm. early on. Um, but you know, Aaron, to to go back to your original question, I mean, what we've just described is probably one of the greatest challenges, not not just with turkeys, but with wildlife management faced by state agencies. Ensuring the sustainability of the resource, which is obviously, you know, their their primary responsibility, but at the same time, recognizing how integral hunters are to that whole system, this whole system of conservation. And so balancing the resource with the hunter desires and maintaining that hunter opportunity is the greatest challenge, you know, that those guys and, and women in those in that those agencies have to face and deal with. Balance is the key word, sounds like. Mm-hmm. And I think patience is a, is another one here because just listening to Mike talk about this stuff and then hearing, you know, from Craig and Adam in these, these kind of different uh, research projects, if you will, and all the data that's been accumulated, it sounds like we just need to be patient. We need more time to answer some of these questions. Right. And, you know, I mean, that's where you get some of the criticism is from people that want they want to wake up tomorrow morning and have all these problems solved, but that's just not reality. I mean, it takes time to flesh out all of these these problems and find sustainable solutions for them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's also something that, you know, state agencies are having to factor into this decision-making process is, you know, they've got this one hypothesis that's related to season dates and its potential impact on the bird's biology. Well, they can change that. You know, they can change that pretty quickly. I mean, they have to go through a process, of course, and, you know, they have conservation commissions or advisory boards and things like that that have that have a say as well. Um, but, you know, on the other side of the coin, one of the things that we talked quite a bit a lot in these first few episodes are some of the data that have come in that have really indicated a habitat crisis for this bird. And, you know, you can't take um, a situation where, you know, only 5% of the landscape is brooding habitat and change that overnight. You know, that's something that, that's going to, it's not saying that it's not worthy of our attention and our efforts, and that shouldn't be a goal that we're working towards, but there's a recognition that that's going to take longer. Yeah, I think that's a good point. They have that lever with seasons at their disposal, and and some of them have been already used that lever, but to me, that's one thing that has been pretty evident from my own experience, and also when talking to these other guys and seeing it measured and then you have like i think there's three studies now that we have covered uh not uh not in those episodes that you can hear all of it yet but we've already talked to some scientists and it's very consistent that we are in the low single digits in what we would consider high quality brood rearing cover i'm talking about the landscape scale in these studies and it's in three separate uh states Mm-hmm. And they all came out with a very similar thing. And to me, that is a real, I think it is a crisis for the, for the bird's productivity. We yeah, all acknowledge the that, issue that I see that yeah. I've got all these questions written about, you know, behind yeah. my, my, in my second panel here right. is after listening to all of those podcasts that you guys have done and then talking with Mike and Brett and other researchers in the last few years, I'm, I mean, 
we're just your typical redneck turkey hunters. Like before <laughs> we started getting into all this stuff, we had no idea about a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is still fairly new to us, but just in the last couple of years, people are going to disagree somewhat on the, on the hunting season stuff. People are going to disagree somewhat on the trapping s- side of things, but from all of the professionals that are getting at this, nobody disagrees on the habitat and that broodering habitat that you just talked about, Marcus, like when it, if you ask any one of you guys, like, how do we make more turkeys every single time that's what the response is centered around is that lack of broodering habitat. Yeah. And we've, we've focused here on, on brooding cover because it is the most limiting, but nesting cover is also limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what was really insightful to me that, that, that Craig discussed in our interview with him is that, uh, 45% of nests were located in these early successional cover types that represented single digit, you know, pers- proportions of the landscape. Well, um, I think one thing will just to make that really clear, when you add the percentage of brood cover to the percentage of nesting mm-hmm. cover and add those two things together, we are still in single digit proportion. Yeah, right. Together. Right. But but almost it's half crazy listening to this because they Craig, those guys in Tennessee have like what is it? I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of birds in that yeah. study. Six hundred yeah. plus, yeah. Six hundred plus hens. Forty five percent of those are nesting in that small of an area. Yeah, almost half. And, you know, you add to that that nest success was greater in those areas. They're choosing those areas for a reason. They know. Yeah. Um, and, he, and in even fact, though was, a, a fairly su- <laughs> a, a significant proportion of them got mowed. Yeah. That's how they were well, lost. Yeah. And we still had higher success. And even that. with the mowing, nest success was around 36%. In those areas, in those early successional areas, um, which, you know, the average is being rec- reported across most southeastern states right now is like 20 to 25 percent. Um, so you got a 10 percent bump there and in, in then the nest being located in those early successional cover types. Um, and if you, as Craig said, you know, if you pulled out the mowing in addition to that, which ended up destroying a nest, you might get another 10 percent bump on top of that. So you're talking about a 20 percent increase above the average. Yeah. And I think that is very telling. You know, think about multiplying that over many hens that are laying 10 or 12 eggs per nest. We're talking about a lot of turkeys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very telling of how important that habitat type is and how important it is for hunters to make sure that that's you know, available mm-hmm. for the wildlife. Yeah. I think I wanted to add one nuance, and, and it's been the source probably of the majority of my negative feedback, is some people do not have that at their disposal. Like, if, you, if you're a public landowner, I get a lot of that. I know you guys probably do. Uh, or you uh, you lease land from, from uh, you know, any number of of, uh, situations, you may not have that lever at your disposal where you can go out and improve habitat and cut cut down trees and burn and all this stuff that we promote a lot to promote that kind of of, uh, vegetation structure. Uh, I think that's one problem. We're getting some negative feedback because some people just don't have that option. And I understand that. I I get it. Uh, We still focus on it a lot because 
we still need that to happen on the landscape one way or another. Another thing that it kind of arose from this discussion, even people who are leasing land, you often do have more flexibility on that specific part of of the uh, vegetation need. And what I mean by that is uh, when the stuff you can manipulate on those lease lands often are the openings. And you could create a better situation often in those openings and really affect brood rearing cover availability. So even in that context, you know, uh, that's that's one that personally I see as something that we need to, as a community, try to figure out ways to get more of that on the ground. And uh, whether you're in, in a lease situation or maybe uh, you're interacting with a land manager that's on public land or whatever, you know, we, we have lots of ways to get there, but uh, I think that that is severely needed. So you're saying with the openings on like a lease property, converting that from some sort of like non-cover type to cover type would be a way for somebody yeah. with like a lease property. Okay. So, so you maybe you have idle ground that uh, you know is in a non-native pasture grass, mm-hmm. and you could convert that. Or maybe you're planting all of your available openings in food plots. You could uh, devote some of that instead to brooding cover, or you could uh, plant things and manage your food plots in a way that promote more desirable brooding when you get around to that part of the year. So there are lots of ways that people could get at that, but even the ones that are constrained because they don't own the place that they are hunting, you know, we still have some options to affect that. And I, I think that's something that that we're trying to get across. I understand that some people are limited and it's really frustrating to hear us saying over and over about it's got to be habitat, got to be habitat. And they're like, well, I don't have any options, but you may have some in your situation and, uh, you know, if you do, maybe we can collectively make a bigger difference in that area. I think we could, we might be able to do something too as a community um, in participating in those processes within our individual states. Because mm-hmm. Arkansas has that turkey stamp that yeah. I've been pretty fired up about here lately. Um, and it's kind of in its infancy. It's only been around for a couple of years. But I've, I've bought that stamp every year for the last few years. I haven't even hunted in Arkansas for two or three years, but I buy that stamp. It's like nine bucks every year. And they actually sent me a packet the state did this year showing where those dollars went oh, and nice. broke it down. That's cool. And they, talk, they talked about like exactly what their state WMA land managers were doing to improve turkey habitat. Mm-hmm. And it was on thousands and thousands of acres. Mm-hmm. Like that's pretty dang cool. So if you're a if you're a public land owner, which mm-hmm. we all are, and you're just hunting public land, there might be some ways for you to get active. But the only way for you to figure that out is if you go and you talk to your to your state biologist and your state agency and go to your commission meetings and stuff mm-hmm. and participate in that conversation. Yeah. There, yeah. there may be some stuff we could do there collectively as a group um, to make some headway in that department. But even then. If you're if you don't have any private land to hunt, you might be able to get private land to hunt if you offer to help that that landowner mm-hmm. improve the wildlife habitat, just improve the native hab- habitat on the property. Mm-hmm. For sure, um, absolutely. You might be able to secure permission to do that, but I think before we get too far here, Marcus and Will, we need to talk about what brood rearing habitat looks like because 
you had a picture on your Instagram the other day, Marcus, and that showed good brood rearing habitat. Mm-hmm. And until Adam and Matt at Land and Legacy showed me pictures of what it looks like, I had no idea. I just heard mm-hmm. those words and I don't I don't know exactly what that means. But talk about that a little bit in detail, what that what that looks like to a turkey, especially to a poult. Yeah. Well, uh, that that's a good, great point that that we have emphasized and, and I've learned the hard way over the years uh, that it's pretty common that we say things like that and it doesn't necessarily translate into a vision on the other side. And the, the one for me that that is most difficult to convey and it, and it has been most difficult to convey over the years has been what what is good pulp rearing cover? What does that look like? How do we get it there is, you know, the next step in that conversation. But if you don't know where you're trying to get, it's hard to get there. And I, and I think part of the reason for that, Marcus, is that without being intentional about creating it, it's not something that's just going to commonly you're going to be able to commonly see and point to as an example across the landscape. Yeah. You're not just going to say, Oh, there, there it is. That's it. And and then we say, though, this is what it looks like. And then you're running through, well, what are it? Let me, let me think of some points of reference where I've seen it. And the mm-hmm. reality is you probably haven't, you know, it's just not that common anymore. And, uh, so at least across a lot of the country, right? Yeah, right. there there are places. There are like, places. I, yeah, there there are some properties where people have done a really phenomenal job, and I've stepped foot on that property, and it's like, wow, okay, this is what it looks like, and and you know, it's just phenomenal. Uh, but that's rare in my experience, and there are lots of reasons that that's the case. But essentially, what you were trying to to see on the landscape, what you're trying to create is a an early successional community and we're basically talking about really high sunlight environment that could include really low density uh, woodland scenarios in some cases where you do have some trees but it's you know you're getting most of the sunlight to the ground and in that understory layer you are dominated by forbs and that's just a broadleaf herbaceous plant so think about if you want to look up some plants because you don't know what we're talking about. If you don't, you're you're not a uh, really keen on identifying plants. Something like common ragweed, or uh, you could look up bone sets. You probably see those all the time. There are a bunch of white flowers that you see. If you're looking at a bunch of yellow flowers, you might see golden rods or uh, some other things like that. There there are many different kinds of forbs. It's essentially a herbaceous flowering plant. Mm-hmm. Wildflowers, so, yeah, wildflowers, and and often people get that, and then they the aesthetics of it are so overwhelming because it's essentially this huge flower patch, and uh, that often goes over well with the rest of the family when they see mm-hmm. that. So, uh, but yeah, so that that we want that part of the plant community to be dominant. So the forb part. Herbaceous forbs and and uh, that can be annuals like the the common ragweed or partridge pea and and uh, there could be some perennial ones that are making up that as well like some of those others I mentioned. Uh, but the key thing structurally is that you have this sort of canopy. You think about a a poult being only a few inches tall. It is still under a canopy, right? That canopy just happens to be two foot tall, and underneath that 
you see a lot of bare soil. You don't see any vegetation, whether it be alive or dead. We want it to be relatively clean. And that's what I was trying to convey in some of those pictures I recently posted is when I go and talk to people and they're, you know, the strategy pretty often is just to stop mowing. And then you get a lot of forbs colonizing into a grass patch. And then you go into that, that forb dominated patch where most of what you're seeing standing is forb, but then you move that, you know, you kind of move those aside and look down to the ground and you see a lot of grass thatch on the ground and you're not there yet if you if if you're in that situation you really want to be forward dominated with that bare soil underneath and that can be an, accomplished through a variety of practices uh through prescribed burning or, or disking if you don't have access to fire and uh you know a combination of herbicides are often needed because there's lots of problematic plants that we have to deal with especially grasses so you may have to you know, mix up how you get there, but that's what structurally you're trying to get to. And Craig, uh, Will actually did a really great job to extract an actual number out of him, which we noted uh, that he's kind of moved a little bit over the years on that. He seems to go less and less on grass. And and I think that's influencing both, both of us to do that as well. But if you're, even if it's native grasses, if you get over, 30% or, or more of the biomass or the coverage of plants as grass, then you're starting to decrease the quality for brooding because forbs are really creating the structure, the thermal environment, and producing the insects in particular. Uh, you know, so they're, they're, they are providing the shelter from predators and the environment and the fruit food production. And because of the way they're structured, they're a single stem that have an umbrella at the tops, essentially. They have they provide a lot of access underneath that bare in that bare ground. So, you know, that that's it's hard for people to visualize getting there. But actually, once you understand what you're looking for and you understand some, you know, a few of these practices and how you can integrate them to get there, you know, a lot of people can get there uh, in their situation. That's something I learned today is the grass is actually, I guess, a bad thing if there's too much of it. Makes mm -hmm. sense, too, because <clears throat> the access, the term access makes a lot of sense. It allows them to, you know, be able to move through it, get away from predators. I think when I think of some of these places that I have seen, there's a lot of that cover, mm -hmm. and usually there's a lot of turkeys. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's kind of crazy. And, and, and Marcus touched on this, but I really want to – wanted to emphasize it is the 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 most uh limiting factor that's preventing these areas from potentially becoming quality brooding cover in most open areas um across especially the eastern united states is introduced grasses exotic grasses and the main problem with those exotic grasses you know these are things like tall fescue bahia grass bermuda grass orchard grass um, is that ryegrass, you know, once they become established in these areas, they're just, you know, they're so, uh, they're so pernicious. They, 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 they're hard, they're very difficult to get rid of, but the, the major problem with them is their growth habit. These grasses, you know, for, they're for a reason used in our lawns and in our pastures because they form this nice, even mat that excludes, you know, diversity of other vegetation types. In contrast, a lot of our native species of grasses just grow in these clumps. You, you guys have seen it. You guys have no, noticed the difference with like the blue stems um, in particular is the one that a lot of people are familiar with or switchgrass, for example. 
they grow in these well-defined clumps. And as long as you don't let their coverage get too high, there's still, you know, usable space for like a turkey poult to move around in between them. So what that what that means is a lot of times before we can really develop these areas into quality brooding cover or nesting cover is we have to use an herbicide solution to eliminate those grasses and then basically start everything over again. Um, but once you get that out of the way, you know, there's a there, there'll be a few instances. I've seen some places where um, the native forb community and the native grass community that comes back is kind of limited. Maybe the seed bank has been exhausted over time if the area has been in agriculture for a very long time. But in most cases, all that stuff's waiting for you right there in the seed bank. Or if it's not, it'll be introduced over time as long as you keep the stuff that outcompetes it, the the exotic stuff in particular, out of the way. Um, and so it's not, you know, you don't always necessarily have to come back and plant that stuff. It's available there for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point, Will. It, it's, uh, you know, n- nature has its ways of getting those seeds there, even in, I've seen it in same, especially in uh, following something like cotton agriculture, where it was really intensively trying to get rid of all the weeds for a long time. But even in those circumstances, a lot of the plants that we want to colonize there have very elaborate adaptations to get there, whether Mm -hmm. it's to sit there for 150 years in the seed bank, which some of them do, or to uh, take advantage of wind and how it interacts with openings and trees, or some of the students in my lab have worked on seed dispersal. And some some of these species, they hitch a ride in inside a bird and they get disproportionately directed into these new areas where they can colonize it, which is a pretty cool thing ecologically. But it's also pretty important in our management context because a lot of people are concerned. They, they bring up that concern with me. Well, my you know, this place has been in sod for decades or, you know, uh, we haven't had an opening within 10 miles of my property in this upland hardwood forest for 100 years. You know, if we go and do this, are we going to see a response? And uh, over over most cases, the the answer is yes. You, the forb, you know, at least it, it may not be a specific composition or specific species of forb, but you can often accomplish the structure with what colonizes that you're looking for in most scenarios, you can accomplish that from a turkey brood rearing cover standpoint. The composition might vary based on previous land use and context, but mm-hmm. you can still accomplish the structure in almost all circumstances. Sounds like disturbance is pretty dang important to the poults. Yeah. And so to to just kind of give the the big picture on this, you know, we throw out this term early succession all the time. And I do think that we could do a better job of defining that when we talk about it. Um, You know, all succession is, is the process of plant communities changing over time in an area. And so if you take, if you take an area that's, you know, a 200 year old forest, um, that's probably the latest successional stage that that area will ever develop. And so if you were to, to go and cut all those trees down, bulldoze it down to bare soil, that plant community that would come back during those first few years is typically what we refer to as early succession. And so without our disturbance, that's going to proceed to the next serial stage. Uh, you'll get into a mid, a mid, uh, a mid succession situation. And particularly here in the Southeast, that happens really fast. You know, like 
three to four years, you're already transitioning over to more woody species composition. Those early pioneer tree species that are going to occupy an area like your pines and your sweet gums and species like that are going to come in. They'll be short, but basically you've already got, you know, you're already a serial stage three and that's a young forest. Um, and so as that continues to develop, it'll eventually get to a point where it's taken over by longer lived species like oaks and hickories. And then beech will come in and, and so on. It's a hemlock in certain places, you know, as you go later and later. Um, and so what we're trying to do is in these areas that we're managing for brooding cover is we interrupt that process repeatedly over time to keep it in the successional stage that is desirable uh, by these hens and their broods and conducive to their survival. I think something that is probably important to note, too, is that before humans had such an impact on the landscape, that was happening naturally Yes. And keeping different mm-hmm. stages of this process present at all times where now, because we have such an impact, it's much more limited to what, you know, how many stages there are on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We've interrupted you know, a lot of those processes. Yeah. And also I, I focused on this a little bit in one, uh, one of my series I did on, on Instagram, at, uh, I think last year during Turkey season, even when you look at the descriptions of what North America looked like, you know, a few hundred years ago, they were describing a landscape that we, we may have had 50% of it was brooding cover. I mean, it was, they were, they were describing situations where they could see as far as, as the eye can see in every direction. You know, it, it was a, the entire place was this really low density forest or, or, a woodland or savanna depends on uh, what you want to call it and where you were but they they described that in Kentucky across the south and Florida like all over the the eastern US the writings consistently described a situation that were very open mm-hmm. and we don't know what proportion of the landscape but we know it was a lot of it and there's yeah. argument over what that percentage actually was but Based on what I've read about it, when I was trying to search for every reference I could find historically of the wild turkey, they were talking about a situation where it was wide open and fire was super frequent, nearly ubiquitously across the landscape. And, you know, the landscape almost almost 100 percent of it has changed to a structure that is not that anymore. And and there's lots of reasons. that also because of... uh like natural large moving buffalo and elk herds and stuff that were grazing different portions of the landscape, but not like overgrazing a spot, they would move. Mm. And yeah. So you're, you're describing uh, what has been coined from the science standpoint is pirate herbivory just means like fire driven herbivory. And uh, yeah, that is one process that we think was really important is we used to have these giant herbivores and you have a fire and you have this really big flush of new vegetation and nutrient dense forage. And then they would move into that recent burned and then you have, you know, a bison's hoof is shaped sort of like a shovel. So you've got these multi-ton, you know, hundreds of individual potentially herds that are coming in and disking up the area and turning all the grass into nutrients that's responding to that fire. I mean, you just imagine that kind of scenario and we pretty much are missing that kind of disturbance. 
But we have yeah. a tractor that m- can mimic that hoof action pretty well, and we have fire that we can pour out of a drip torch and mimic that part of it pretty well. And you know, we we can integrate cl- those t- two tools cleverly in ways that can really produce some some high quality productive land for for turkeys. But you're yeah. exactly right. There there are a lot of things. That, you know, the native uh, people were also using fire extensively. So uh, you know there. Are, there are a lot of things that were going into creating that kind of landscape that were present in 16, 17, 1800s that now is pretty much gone. Yeah. I mean, think about it. I mean, what stopped a wildfire, you know, 300 years ago, you know, it just went till it, it hit some t- topographical feature or water or something like that. So it, it just, it just went. And then, you know, like Marcus was just saying, we've lost some of these critters that used to, that used to disturb the environment as well. Um, and then we've gained a whole bunch of stuff from elsewhere. Like we just talked about with the grasses that have occupied a lot of these, these, uh, areas that we have to contend with as well. So, you mm-hmm. know, the ecosystems change. And so along with that, that, you know, in some cases results in us, uh, having to do a little bit more, you know, anthropogenic management, you know, the, the system just d- can't function the way that it used to. Um, that that doesn't mean that we can't meet objectives of like making right, more turkeys. Right, right, we can absolutely. meet that objective. We just have to be clever about the use of the tools at our disposal. But another another disturbance process a lot of folks don't think about is like flooding. We've controlled a lot of flooding. I was going to just ask that about yeah. riparian areas because we mm-hmm. see that all the time. It's like, why is there so many turkeys along creeks and rivers? Right. And when you walk through those areas in May and June, you don't see a lot of grasses in those woodlands. Mm-hmm. You see lots of weeds and forbs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another thing I learned today, flooding. I didn't ever <laughs> think about that, honestly. I mean, you yeah. think about fire and you hear about fire all the time. Mm-hmm. But like Aaron yeah. said, I mean, there's been plenty of cases. I mean, there's one year in particular, Aaron, that you and I both know about where oh, an area that we hunted flooded. And it was just yeah. like, it was absurd. It was It was truly absurd. I've never seen anything like it before or since. And it was just it was like was... everything was green along that riparian area and the turkeys were all over it but then by the time you know you don't th- you think about this as a turkey hunter during the season it's like it's this real short green grass along the bank of this water mm-hmm. and there's there's toms out there strutting every day but fast forward two months later and that's where she's got her poults mm-hmm. and i think back to that like on my family farm where have we consistently seen poults on our hundred acres over and over for the last 10 or 15 years? It's always on the edge of that dang food plot that we disc up there through the edge of the woods. Mm-hmm. Like they won't get in the middle of it where the clover is so thick that they can't make it through. But out on the edges of that food plot where the moisture gets zapped a little bit, where there's mm-hmm. bare dirt, mm-hmm. that's where we always see them. And yep. that's yep. like, one percent of the landscape on our property i mean it's so yeah, yeah. tiny but you consistently see poults and their broods in that one spot and mm-hmm. all this you know all these light bulbs start going off and you guys talk about it, it's like that's why they're there it's because that's mm-hmm. the last place they have left and yeah. something mike told us a few years ago that just it blew my mind was that 28 days or month long period after those those turkeys are hatched is one of the most important time frames for making turkeys mm-hmm. because once they get past that point and correct me if i'm wrong guys once they get past that point the survival rate increases dramatically 
Yeah, it's re- it really is two weeks. It's about from hatch till about two weeks old, somewhere okay. in that, you know, give or take. Yeah, that is that is a critical, I mean, it really is a moment, right? It's just mm-hmm. like a, such a small portion of their life cycle, but that is a critical part of it. And, it, you know, you just think about how tiny they are when they come out of an egg. They can't go very far. They can't thermoregulate. They, they have to grow extraordinarily rapidly. And they have to meet a very high intake of insects to to do that. And all of those things are provided in that that type of vegetation structure, and they aren't anywhere else. And one of Mike's studies that really speak to this directly, and uh, we're we're going to have a one of the other scientists involved on hopefully at some point in the near future, they looked at that from the thermal aspect as well and even in that study they still had single digit proportion of the landscape met the thermal requirements so that they don't die we're still in a single digit percent of the landscape that met the thermal bounds so that a pole wouldn't die from exposure and that you know it's just the same that's essentially the same vegetation that's providing that along with these other things we're talking about and it and the other thing I wanted to to touch on that you said, Aaron, that that uh, I, I think resonates with me, and and I've seen it resonate with others, is we it's gone so far as to people will refer to turkeys and other species as edge species because of what you just described. We see them using the edges of places, and it's because that's what's left to use. It's not actually that they're an edge species. And uh, Craig, I've heard him get on a yeah. <laughs> on a soapbox about this a few times, but he's right. If you're managing fields such that all of the cover throughout the entire field, and, and we could you know we could talk about a thirty acre field, right? If it if it all is very highly desirable structure, they will use all of it. Right? They'll they'll be all out in the middle of it, and uh, that's something that that Craig has kind of. Uh, brought up to me and and will uh, sometimes in the same company uh, repeatedly is that if you create a situation where all of that is usable, they will use all of it. They're not relegated to the edge then. Yeah. And that doesn't just apply to turkeys. You know, you hear a lot of people say that about deer and quail too. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just because the vegetation they're seeking is oftentimes only at the edges of fields, you know, where they join into a forest. And so if you use management to replicate that out, you know, across large areas, they're no longer an edge species, right? Mm-hmm. You've just created those conditions that they they uh, prefer over a larger area. Man, we're trying. I'm excited about it, though, because <laughs> we used to create this stuff in the, in the small percentages like we're talking about by accident. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. we didn't want there being no clover growing along the edge of our food plot 15 years yeah. ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Really better. Yeah. But now that you explain that and, you know, start, we've started doing fire and you know, some forest stand improvement and stuff on the farm. And we're already seeing these things take shape just mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I don't even really turkey hunt that farm anymore. I'm just interested in taking kids out there mm-hmm. to get them involved. But, um, that this habitat thing, like we, me and Zinger talk about this all the time and he's got buddies out in Ohio that do this same stuff that are experts in it that Mm -hmm. know their way around the forest and know what different plant species we're looking at and all that. Mm -hmm. But, um, I thought Adams 
Um, going back to it a little bit, Adam Butler mentioned the amount of turkeys harvested per acre in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was fascinating when he got to talking about that, because I don't want to undersell this, that that we can make a difference locally, because <laughs> I, I truly believe you guys are 100 percent right on that. Like and. I guess make sure I don't get these numbers wrong because I don't remember exactly what the numbers were, but the the statewide average that Adam was looking at was like one turkey harvested every 1,200 acres or something. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. But then he said, remember, that's big picture average. That's Mm -hmm. not indicative of necessarily what's going on on your local level. He said there was so much variance there. Mm-hmm. that some properties that were extremely well managed because he actually knew the landowners mm-hmm. there and what they were doing for turkeys, they were harvesting like one bird per 250 or 300 acres. Mm-hmm. Just think yeah. about how many more turkeys per acre that is, you know, yeah. or per hundred acres or however you want to, however you want to explain it, how many more turkeys they have on that specific property versus the statewide average or versus areas that are worse than that. I'm sure there's areas mm-hmm. that have one turkey harvested per 3,000 acres, you know, for yeah. example. Well, it definitely is. And that was something that was that was telling to us and, and kind of striking as well that, it, first of all, there's that much variability, but also I think we'll even follow it up with him that they those places that do have the higher harvest, they – are doing that sustainably and consistently have more turkeys, which is reflective of them, you know, doing a lot of great work on the ground that, you know, is producing more turkeys. Like that, you know, this, uh, all of those things are going together. They they are maintaining a much higher rate of harvest because they're ma- maintaining a higher rate of reproduction. And And I think that's kind of where we're getting at if, you know, we at the local level that's what they're doing they're increasing their productivity to sustain more harvest and they're seeing reaping the rewards of of that over long term you know the long term they're they are maintaining a higher harvest because of the productivity and then and, you know uh, adam was talking about that, that some of those properties that are doing that are some of the most well managed and 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 it often is a group of landowners who have gotten together and, you know, they, they have a big imprint, you know, they, they have several thousand acres that are, have united together to really try to increase productivity. And, and, uh, you know, I think it shows, and that was, I was really excited to have him talk about that. Cause he told us, uh, that he had some numbers comparing, you know, public and private land. And I was really excited about that, uh, when he, when he started, you know, getting into the details of it. Well, he he mentioned that, and we have an actual example of that that we're going to film this spring, Zinger. Um, there's a giant public area down there that's had very little management, and it gets super heavily pressured. Mm-hmm. And I think they killed somewhere between 15 and 20 gobblers off of it last year. And it's, this place is huge. There's a piece of private land that is directly next door that is like one-tenth the size of that public area that is intensely managed for turkeys. 
And um, I mean, habitat, they're, they're managing the number of birds they take each year. They're doing some predator stuff. Mm-hmm. They're doing everything. But habitat it was, is like the thing that that landowner harps on the most to us. Yeah. They killed the exact number on that place that mm-hmm. they did on that public area that's 10 times larger. And yeah. it has 10 times more hunters on it. Mm-hmm. And that just speaks to me exactly what those numbers are that we're talking about. It's like you have these areas that are in, they're right next to each other. Now, I'm sure that the the plant communities and stuff are different because it's so diverse across the landscape. But that's as close as you can get. I mean, just mm-hmm. literally right across the road. And you have mm-hmm. you have a sustainable turkey population that it, with consistent harvests on it in one area. And then on the other, you have a declining harvest. Mm-hmm. That just, yeah. uh, we're going to go and film that property and talk about the habitat steps that he's taken to yeah, manage that's it. Yeah, that's great. That's really but good stuff. Yeah, It's very, very, I mean, eye-opening whenever you you start to talk to those guys that do that stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Will, you even mentioned this on a podcast not that long ago, how your wheels have been turning about because from the deer world, we manage on a local level a lot of times, mm-hmm. like county by county or, you know, different regions of the state or whatever. And we've not got to that point with turkeys. Right. But that may be a, that may be a place we need to look at down the right. road. Well, that, that, let me start by saying that's one of the things I got called out for. because uh marcus i think you got a you got a message um a private message that basically what was the state where they said that they actually do that i think it was ohio uh or maybe illinois one of they they were from a state where you have tags for individual counties illinois ohio's got a couple regions but yeah okay but illinois Illinois has the yeah yeah yeah, I'd say but, that that shows you right now that like I I, I immediately responded to that person. It's like, listen, we were showing a little bit of our southern bias there. This is really yeah. uncommon in the south, and we definitely want to acknowledge that people or or, or states or whatever are managing very differently in different parts of the the country. Right. Yeah. yeah, and as as far as that question, Aaron, I mean, you know, let me let me preface this by saying that. I've got a I've got a close friend that's big in the R three community. He he does a lot of work in that regard, and he always reminds me because he's he's pulling me in that direction, and I'm always pulling towards the wildlife biology side of things, you know. And so I'm always thinking, you know, it, the the more intensively I can manage smaller areas because I know what's going on with this population here versus that one there, what this one needs, and with the harvest it can withstand versus this one over here, the better that I can manage those populations to be sustainable, right? But you have to balance that with hunting regulation complexity. Um, and that's something that, you know, I don't think as much about because I'm not involved in making policy. Um, but you guys hunt all over the place and you know how complex hunting regulations can be in some oh, certain yeah. areas that's where it's like, point. you can do this on that side of the highway, but you can't do it on this side of the highway. Yeah. Um, and if you're not from that area, trying to keep up with those geographic boundaries can be very difficult. But at the same time, you know, if we do start to try to move in that direction with turkeys, I think it'll allow us some additional flexibility to to manage those populations for their maximum potential. Definitely something that everybody's going to have to weigh at some point, potentially. But I hadn't thought about that, what you just mentioned. That's a really good point because we run into that all the time. It drives us insane. Yeah. <laughs> like traveling state to state, 
and just spending hours and hours on the road reading through regulations and trying to make sure we don't have a misstep anywhere. And yeah, yeah, they get and I mean, like complex. All of us have been doing this for a long time, so we've got some institutional knowledge that kind of helps us sort through that stuff and figure it out. Um, Or maybe like you know, you know, a, a biologist in that state that I can call and be like can you tell me what license to buy or, you know, questions like that? I've done that. But, um, you know, if you think about that being a barrier to entry to somebody that's a brand new hunter or is just starting out, they only have a few years of experience under their belt. I mean, that's a, that's a mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, and Turkey hunting, that is difficult for people to just turn around and say, you know what, this year I'm going to become a Turkey hunter. Cause it's already hard. And, and, uh, yeah. Uh, that's an important point to think about is you know, we don't want to create unnecessary barriers, but uh, with with something like turkeys, it can be quite different in productivity in fairly small spaces. You know that that yes. maybe if if we need to manage hunting pressure in particular better, that would be an obvious step is to try to do it at a smaller scale. The thing though that you said earlier about like southern bias managing per county like the one thing that's very consistent down south that was not a thing for me growing up in ohio is different regulations for different wmas i'm not saying it doesn't happen some in ohio but like it's kind of just this general statewide deal where down south you have to make sure on Mm. i mean literally on one side of the road or the other on the same piece of public land what you can do and what you can't do so like i guess in your defense as well Things down there are definitely different when it comes to that. I don't know if it's always been the case, but since I've started doing it in the last five, six years or whatever, it definitely is a new challenge mm-hmm. for me. So, I mean, it's yeah. happening in, to some degree, not everywhere, yeah. but, you know, some places. And I, and I yeah. think one of the important aspects of being able to manage on that smaller scale is even even across an area as big as a state, turkeys face issues different issues in different places. Um, there's a recent study that was published, um, in the upper Midwest where, you know, they, they intensively study these two different populations and different landscapes of the state. You know, one was, um, a heavy agricultural area and the other one was primarily forested. And they found that in the agricultural area, places that had more forest patches tended to be performing better in terms of Turkey numbers. Whereas in the heavily forested area, populations tended to be performing better in areas that had more openings. And so, you know, what that that smaller scale management allows us to do is to address those issues um, from one place to another, because turkeys, like I said, face face different ones. And I think, you know, kind of tying this back into the bigger picture of this conversation, you know, that's one of the things that we're trying to work towards with our research is trying to understand at a finer scale what's affecting turkeys over here and what's priority one that we need to address and what's facing them over here. Uh, because, you know, everybody wants to look at one solution, but oftentimes in wildlife management, especially for a species like turkeys that covers such a broad geographic range and is present in so many states, that's not that list is going to differ, you know, and we need to figure out how it differs from one place to another. Mm-hmm. What are the hurdles that you all have down there in some places for prescribed fire and I guess some of these management things, because I learned a lot of this stuff just in the last couple of years from Adam and Matt at Land and Legacy, and then extended that knowledge from, you know, Ben and Keith and Larry in Ohio that, mm-hmm. you know, the Zach's good buddies out there. But 
in some of these places, we don't have really these giant hurdles. I mean, all we have to do is get the right equipment, which, to be honest, is is not that overwhelming. It's pretty dang affordable if you've got a group of guys that are willing to go and sacrifice an afternoon or two to do some really good stuff on a property. Mm-hmm. But to kind of, I guess, to kind of add to that, sorry, Warb, to cut you off, but like to add to that, something that I have circled here is I feel like this is something that, at least with my friend group, like the people that we've just mentioned, this is kind of knowledge that we've established and we all feel confident in you know, making these changes and and applying a lot of these things we've been talking about. But at what point does it become a challenge with non-hunters as well? Because when I talk to somebody that's a non-hunter about fire, it's like, well, Mm fire is the worst thing in the world. And it's like this cons, it's like pulling teeth. I got to feel like I have to, okay, I have to approach this here and try to completely sway this, you know, opinion that's been set in stone for so long now. And I just constantly think about that as we continue to get this message to more hunters that's a great thing but then at what point are we just you know hit a wall hitting a wall because non-hunters are a part of this as well non-hunters are landowners so Mm -hmm. yeah that that's something that i deal with in my daily job and have for years and years and years and uh Part of that is because a lot of there's a that tool is so valuable for habitat management for such a wide arrangement of species, especially in the southeast, uh, but certainly uh, applies elsewhere. And I think one major barrier is what you said that what people see about fire, and I'm just talking about on average across people from all over the place. They see what they see on the news, and it's usually a catastrophe where we have this monster, you know, enormous fire that's dist- destructive of property and life, and uh, and that's that's definitely one big barrier is the perception just from the the community. I, I'm with you. I think from the hunting community, especially in my experience working with folks in the South, over. Overall, it's pretty well accepted that fire is a great tool and that it uh, is very important to the success of managing a lot of these species. Something that I see as a barrier that I've also worked on with private landowners is, first of all, knowledge. Try, you know, not not just that fire is good, but also how to safely apply fire and where to get that knowledge and getting experience as part of that knowledge. And I've worked in various uh, realms trying to to reduce that barrier. Uh, we have, we're doing pretty good in the South. And uh, I know that in some of the Midwestern states, it's very accessible as well to get on a, a field day where you can go out and burn with a, another landowner or the state agency is putting on a learn and burn type of opportunity. We have those uh, pretty regularly here and, and trying to make them more accessible. Uh, another thing that I more recently have been working on is is uh, what we'd call a prescribed burn association. And uh, I actually was part of a, a training we put online, and that was one of our focal points in that training was making sure that people understood what a prescribed burn association is and that you probably have one near you. Uh, they're popping up all the time. They started in the Midwest and Oklahoma and, and Kansas and those areas. 
And uh, they really have done well at go getting at another barrier, uh, not just the knowledge where you can get access to people who have, you know, are applying fire a lot, but also uh, access to equipment. So what that that prescribed burn association is essentially a collection of landowners that all want to help each other burn and they share time and effort and knowledge, but they also share equipment. And then there are also opportunities to apply for grant funding uh, in some cases that can help you get some of that equipment in, in uh, those prescribed burn associations, I think are really helping. The other really big barrier is is uh, liability or the fear of liability. And that, I think, is one thing that, that is obvious, like inherently dangerous to use fire. And there's a fear that if something happened, that you're going to be liable. And, and uh, that's a real barrier. And I would say that in my experience, is usually the number one from a private landowner deciding to use fire that has not been that's where it is. I think we're lucky in the South uh, in that we have legislation in multiple states that are basically colloquially called right to burn laws. And what those are, are legislation where our government has acknowledged that fire is in the best interest of the people. And we have legislation the stipulating a process that you go through to, you know, often it includes getting prescribed burn manager training, which is provided by your state agency. Uh, so getting that training and then going, you know, getting a, a burn permit and having a notarized burn plan, those kinds of things uh, to establish that you are not negligent. And then under those right to burn laws, uh, they provide you protection from that liability. So, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky here. That is not the case in some parts of the United States, and that is a major barrier. And, and uh, you know, I'm often with a lot of scientists that are trying to reduce that barrier, you know, in multiple yeah. aspects. So I think that that is uh, summing up from a private landowner standpoint, really what we see is the barriers, uh, at least from my perspective. Yeah, the part of the country that I'm the most concerned about when it comes to prescribed fire is the Northeast. Mm -hmm. um, I get I get more messages from folks in the Northeast than anywhere else asking me, you know, what is what can I do here because I'm not allowed to burn for whatever reason um, or, you know, I have nobody to help me, nobody to teach me, um, all those sorts of things. And that's for a variety of reasons. You know, there's just not as much of a, a cultural um, experience or or tradition of burning in that part of the world. And then of course you've just got it's one of our most densely populated portions of the country, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I went up or didn't go up. I, it was an online talk. I gave a talk to the, the Pennsylvania prescribed fire council last spring. Um, it seems like they're really active. They've got a lot of members from New York too, that are trying to get involved and move things forward. Marcus, I think you spoke to them yeah, either last year, year or the year before too. Yeah. It was the year before last I, yeah. I talked to him about burning in hardwoods, which was a completely yeah. new and different animal to yeah. bring up in that crowd. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what they had me talk about as well. Um, yeah. So they're they're really trying to move things forward, but uh, they're facing a lot of barriers. Mm -hmm. Could you guys send us some of that stuff? Because um, we would love to post those 
communications out there for people in yeah. different parts of the country to go to the, and learn more about this, like those learning burns and whatnot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And, uh, also, uh, I can provide you a link. Uh, the training we did an online training. It doesn't take the place of the prescribed burner. Uh, you know, process that you need to go with your own through with your own state agency. But we tried to collect knowledge on a whole bunch of things, including the barriers. And you know, we really tried to address those and, and make it really general. And we developed an online training that's free that you can go and take on your own time whenever you get ready. And it can provide you a lot of knowledge and context and also a lot of resources. It connects you directly to like uh, we have a link in there to link you to a tracking system of all the registered prescribed burn associations so you can go on there and see is there one near me in my state wherever you're at so uh we'd be happy to link you to any of that kind of information i think i think those learn and burn events are so invaluable because everybody goes into these into you know this prescribed burning with a vision of what it's going to look like in their minds and oftentimes they are completely underwhelmed when they see their first prescribed fire. Now I'm not saying yeah. that, you know, prescribed fires never get a little bit exciting. You know, sometimes they do. Um, <laughs> That's usually but, an accident. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, my fires never do that. Marcus, you know, on the other hand, but, hey. um, but yeah, I mean, I take, I take students out to burn, you know, several times a year and most of them, the first time we light things off, they're just kind of like, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah like you could step over the fire and get pictures right. from each angle and backing slowly <laughs> back down the hill here and it takes hours yeah. to complete you know yeah, yeah. That, well i think that's part of the problem is people are expecting to see what they see on the news and the yeah. the fires that we're using in prescribed fire are not newsworthy <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah that's a good point and and that's something that I would, you know, highly encourage people that are interested in that. You know, you have access to those kinds of opportunities, whether it be through your state agency with a learn and burn. There are a lot of nonprofit organizations and they vary depending on where you're at and what the, you know, the nonprofit's about. But uh, there's prescribed burn associations that take people all the time, new people to get them introduced to, to burning and get experience. Like those opportunities are becoming more and more available and and i think that's exciting because i think it's one of the tools that could be the most valuable for us especially with turkeys i think it you know that that tool is super valuable uh, get over uh, the I, mental hurdles it's not hard yeah, yeah. See, if i can figure out how to do it then most people can do it I yeah, mean, yeah yeah it's not difficult and it's not expensive to get right involved in yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the rewarding thing is you can see it happen right there yeah. and then be right there in the next couple months as you see the landscape mm -hmm. transform. And then you, yes. you can see yes. like people are so obsessed with short term results mm -hmm. there. And this is a way you can combine short term results with long term value. Yeah. Like that's can, a, that's like the the ultimate short term result. Like you have a fire and then six weeks later it is prime. You yeah. Know, it's a. Uh, really quick turnaround that you know uh, to kind of add to this discussion and circle back to another thing that that we were talking about earlier the negative feedback that i usually get about that is people lease a property that you know it's an industrial private landowner or something that owns the property and the fire is not a tool that is usable it's not accessible to those people and you know i think that's important to think about in their context if you have access to fields 
you can get some of the same stuff from a tractor. And a lot of them have a tractor and they're planting food plots. And mm-hmm. uh, we could tweak the way you're doing the food plots or the way you're managing the opening otherwise to to get productivity there, even if you don't have access to fire. And uh, the, like Will, I'd, I'd say the that my concern is really in the Northeast with that too, because that's the, that is where I get that that line of questioning from the most is from the Northeast. And then second most is from people who are on a lease that they can't use fire on. Yeah. Something that I was going to mention is if you're listening to this and you have questions about how to get started doing this, feel free to reach out to anybody involved here. I think that's, you know, Mm -hmm. a good thing to welcome as well is like, we can try to help point you in the right direction. Or if you're one of these individuals that has experience in some of these regions that we're talking about, like obviously the Southeast fire is talked about a lot down there, but like out West and in the Northeast and even like in States like Ohio, I know that it's not as uh, common. It's not a practice that's as commonly used. And if you are doing these things already, you know, feel free to like reach out to us and help, you know, us connect you with other people because that's really what's going to ultimately, I think, make big differences. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the individual scale, but then if people, if hunters can be helping hunters, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Absolutely. a huge deal. I mean, that, that habitat is, um, I mean, everything, like we mentioned at the start of this discussion, everybody agrees on that aspect of it. Like, even if you don't agree on the predator trapping aspect of it, the habit, better quality habitat um, for turkeys can help you down the road in, in that portion of your management as well. Because right now, a lot of these habitats, not all, but a lot of them are habitats that are very suitable for predators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And if you that's something that Marcus and I have discussed. Where you, yeah, where you've got a, a, you know, a good balance, a good mixture of habitat that's good for you know, upland birds like turkeys and quail or pheasants or whatever, but y- you can also have that habitat that exists there that's good for predators. They all work together. Mm-hmm. And if one side gets lopsided or the other, then you've got issues. And that that seems to stem from the habitat in a lot yeah. of places. There, and that, that, that's such a good point. And it was one that Adam made in, um, I guess that would be what, Marcus, episode two? Mm-hmm. Um he of the wild turkey science podcast he, he mentioned that you know pretty much all upland game birds are declining oh dude he did say that, that yeah was super yeah i tried to get him to repeat it yeah yeah, yeah. Now, he was talking about the eastern united states uh and i tried to get him to repeat it but his train was already going so we <laughs> yeah. just let him keep going <laughs> yeah but so, but if that if that if that knowledge in and of itself doesn't you know motivate you to think more deeply about habitat then I don't think any, I can't think of anything else that'll convince you to do so. But, well, um, you know, another listener, Will, I don't, I, I can't remember what, which forum it came, it got brought to light, but it's not just game birds either. Yeah. There are a whole bunch of bird species and other species, and many of them are linked to very similar communities of plants that provide habitat, and they're all declining. A, a whole bunch of them so that you know and they they aren't even being hunted you know many of those species so 
to me, when we start taking a step back and now looking at it as a community of wildlife species, some of them are not even being influenced by these same predators or by human harvest, and they're still declining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's like the super big picture look at yeah. this too. Um, and I that's why I like what Kyle's doing, Liebarger at that mm-hmm. Habitat Project, because he's always you know, he is focused on turkeys and deer occasionally and things, but a lot of the stuff he's talking about is just removing invasives and just creating native habitats again Yeah, um, yeah. on a basic level. And I feel like that really benefits a wide array of species, no matter what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Marcus, Marcus, I found that, I found that paper that you mentioned that one of our listeners sent to us. Yeah. And um, it has bird declines by habitat type since the 1970s. This is from a paper that was published a while back in Science. And grassland birds are declining or the or the number one declining group of species. And since the 1970s, they declined by over an estimated 50 percent. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a lot. Kind of freaky. Yeah. A lot of those species are linked to the same place that a pulp needs to be raised yeah yeah something that i was gonna jump to and i don't know if this is jumping around too much or not but i think aaron mentioned something a little bit about it uh the way that a lot of these landscapes are currently without the right type of habitat sets up really well for predators whether or not you know predator populations are too high or not when I think of, and th- this is something that some of my buddies kind of brought up to me, when I think of a food plot or such a high focus on food, which is a big part of management practice and kind of still, in my opinion, a common uh, opinion of a lot of land managers is that I need more food. So I'm going to plant a food plot or I'm going to have a food plot with a feeder or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. When and when my buddies, okay, because this this is stems. also a lot to do with deer, right? A lot to do with deer, but tur- but it, yeah. maybe more specifically turkeys even is like okay. When you have this congregation of animals going to this, you know, food, like specifically a feeder is really kind of my biggest pet peeve, mm-hmm. but a food plot even in general when it doesn't have that cover, the escape, like you said for mm-hmm. a young turkey to get away it's just kind of getting this bait site, not only for the animal to get the food, but also for the predators to get their food. They're going down there. They're putting their heads down. Like if a turkey's at a feeder, it's just standing in the wide open, mm-hmm. you know, underneath no cover, therefore making them vulnerable. And I think like when we talk about changing the habitat, that's ultimately also getting food for those animals. And I think that's kind of a misconception, something that's easily overlooked when we talk about having the cover and all these things for the wildlife it's also bringing a lot of food to it do you guys see Mm. or do you guys feel the same way or do you feel like there's this hyper focus on food to the degree that it kind of becomes problematic because because that's kind of how i feel and how i see it is like management in general for wildlife like hunters that are land managers just focus so much on food I'm going to put a food Mm -hmm. plot on here and it's going to be better for everything. And in reality, I don't always know that that's true. Yeah. 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 That's a really good question. And I mean, I think you can just, I mean, going back to the deer example, but you could use turkeys too. 
I mean, you guys know that if you if you hunt just a, a big like square or circular food plot, um, those animals probably are going to just hang near the edges. And especially like with deer, they may come out at last light if they even make an, a, an appearance in the daylight versus if you've got like one of these long linear food plots, you know, there's animals coming in and out of it all the day and they're showing all day and you're, they're showing you right then and there with their behavior that they feel more comfortable in a place that has security cover close by. Um, so that kind of speaks, you know, Zach, to your, your cover at your co- the cover aspect of your question. You know, you don't want to just necessarily have all your food allocated to an area that is lacking escape cover. Um, but I think bigger picture and, and Marcus, you know, I, I'd like to, you to chime in on this too, but cause I know this is a question we deal with a lot is there's too much focus on feeding animals in somewhat artificialized ways. You know, we think we have to plant it or buy it in a bag and pour it out on the ground or pour it in a feeder or something like that. And I think that that's just simply an education issue like this. You know, these people that are doing this, they don't know of other ways that they can do it. Or maybe in some cases, as we've already discussed, they don't have the ability to, to create food sources elsewhere. But, you know, you may you may create 10 times just the quantity or the biomass of food for deer or turkeys in a food plot than you would in the surrounding forest. Okay, but we can manage that forest in such a way where we can get that number in the forest itself up three or fourfold. We won't get it up to the food plot. Like if we're talking Mm. deer, you're not going to have a soybean field level of forage in a forest. You know, you can't manage it in such a way that that happens. But if we can increase the the threshold in that forest by three or fourfold, and then you couple that with the fact that we have many, many more acres of forest to manage available on most properties than we do fields, the payoff of managing that forest starts to become really clear. And so not only have you increased that food availability, but you've merged it with cover too. Mm -hmm. And to, to add to that same thing, you can do that often for pennies on the dollar Mm -hmm. in that, in that other scenario, you know, when you're managing native forages and something that we talked about, uh, the, Pennsylvania prescribed fire council briefly earlier when I went and talked to to that group and heard their problems and everything. And one of the real barriers was the concern for damaging timber, uh, particularly oaks that are really valuable. And I just uh, had a, a article that that actually that whole process got me thinking about it. And I did this big literature review and then wrote an article that the National Deer Association published recently showing that even if we take worst case scenario based on the literature where they've done all these experiments trying to figure out what what might you lose in timber value and then compare that to these other practices, even if you were using fire in the hardwood setting and you did take some damage because it got away from you or whatever, we did worst case scenario of what your expectation was in loss of timber and added that into the cost of managing that native forage, it is still way more efficient from a financial standpoint than than pouring it out of a bag or or uh, planting it even and that that really put it into perspective for me that even that barrier for people that they're using that as their reason they don't use fire even when we take that into account from a cost standpoint it was still way more efficient so uh, to get back to, to this conversation, I, I do see it and, and think the same way about it, that we, 
it's really easy for us to just assume, and I think it it's common that it is assumed that food is what is limiting. Yeah, and I I think when you're a hunter and you're watching these successful hunters on TV or YouTube yeah. or whatever it may be, and a lot of times you're seeing them on a private land setting where mm-hmm. the food source is the focus. Yeah. It's like, well, that's what they're doing. That's what I should do. Right. And like for your long-term sustainability of these species that we like to hunt and, um, you know, just overall wildlife habitat and health of forests and everything, there's a lack of education mm-hmm. and because it's so easy to just perceive that that's the answer, you know, food, yeah. food plot feeder is the answer. Right. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, there it is what right is, there in front of yeah. you. They're shooting a turkey every time they, you know, they're having yeah, yeah, strut yeah. in front of them, whatever. It's like that, right. that looks like the answer. So, well, and you know, those concentrated food source like that are often really attractive and they do present some opportunity mm-hmm. and they, and we should acknowledge that. But uh, the other side of that coin is that food is not necessarily limiting. It, it could yeah. be some other factor. And, you know, for turkeys, I, I would say it's probably not food in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. the other for thing I see, a, yeah, uh, the other thing I see a lot is, is uh, this focus on predators. And, you know, for some reason, it's either it has to be food or it has to be predators. And the reality is there are lots of other ways that a population could be limited. It does not have to be one of those two. The other thing is they are not mutually exclusive. Like we were talking about earlier with the habitat, what makes a hen safe when she's on a nest and makes that nest successful, that habitat is also influencing the predator, not just in whether or not it can find her, but also in its quality of habitat. You know, we're, we're influencing all of these things collectively and and will and i think focus on habitat a lot because we often can manage the vegetation in ways that has this umbrella effect that positively affects the biology of the animal from all of these aspects uh you know whether it be the predation rate or the thermal environment available or the food availability all of those things are being influenced all together at the same time positively yeah and i think that when i'm talking about this i'm i'm not saying that on my property i wouldn't have a food plot or i wouldn't yeah, you yeah. know or i wouldn't sure. trap or i wouldn't manage <clears throat> predators i would yeah all that i'm trying to i guess bring to light is is that like you're also trying to do is that it's all sure. aspects of it. I think sure, you just sure. have to kind of, yeah. you know, if you're doing your best, your best is trying to focus on all those little things and not just sure. trying to get one solution to the whole problem. Right. And, right. That, and right. that's one something thing everybody agrees on is the habitat. That's mm-hmm. what I, yeah. Like, and I, I mean, we can, we won't have, we don't have to get into the predator stuff and the hunting seasons and all that. But like you guys mentioned, that stuff is controversial with the public. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really have any feelings on it yet because I, mm-hmm. you know, we need, we just need to learn more. I'm, I'm patient enough to wait and let yeah. you guys do the hard work and figure out what all this <laughs> stuff looks like. Yeah. Like well, we, our, our yeah. next series that we're about to drop is on predation and predator trapping and what we have from a scientific standpoint. And we have multiple scientists that are telling us different points of view on it. And 
we already have been all in the middle of that conversation and we weren't even trying to be yet. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, such a controversial issue. And I think some of that stems, you know, we have a a lot of people are in the middle on this and Will articulated this to me the other day. A lot of people are on board with us that habitat is absolutely critical and that's the, the foundation and then trapping can be added to that potentially to get an extra bump and, and uh, I think most people are in that, but we also have people that are sort of on the the extremes of, of this point of view, yeah. right? Where some yeah. are like, no, uh, trapping isn't a tool in the toolbox. We need to be all habitat. And then we have other people that they're all in on trapping is the, the answer because predators kill turkeys. And that's what we need to focus all our effort on. And, you know, most people are in the middle of that conversation. They agree that those two things, you know, if habitat's in order... Trapping can be used as a tool to enhance that. And, uh, you know, I think that that is one of the most divisive issues uh, mm. that that ever comes up for me. And uh, the, the other thing we need to acknowledge is that there are a lot of people that don't have the habitat tool. Mm-hmm. So they and then they get really tools, upset. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think rightly so, they get really upset if they do have that other tool and then people are telling them that it's not a viable tool. And I think, you know, that it just is inherently uh, one of those issues that we all get really uh, heated about. And just the turkey community in particular get really upset about it, uh, uh, trying to support their point of view. But we all really agree at the end of the day, we're just trying to make more turkeys and we might disagree a little bit on how to get there, but we also need to acknowledge that people are in different situations and they might have to value tools differently from one another because of the situation they're in. I like that. Yeah. yeah and I, I mean, not to go down the predator rabbit hole too far, but man, if we could, uh, if we <laughs> could as not? a group, if we could as a group figure out how to make furs valuable and you know, create a conservation aspect within those, that would be like, I, I was thinking about that the other day. We've talked about that a bunch of singers like, man, could we, is there a way we could make some sort of hunting, you know, garments out of furs <laughs> and we could just turn the profits right back around. And oh, I love that, that idea. Yeah. I was like, just about would... to say, if you make a raccoon hat with hunting public stamped on it, I'll be the first one in line. Well, that's what we've I been talked talking about. It. We've been talking about a bunch. It's like, Hayden, can we make these? And he's like, it's going to be real expensive. It's like, who cares? Somebody will buy it, and we're not going to keep any of the money. We're going to give it right back to turkeys. Yeah. So, or yeah. or whatever, give it right back I'd... to native habitats or conservation in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. But that would be that would be awesome if we could figure that out. We're we are trying. Like I always wired that way is like you see a problem, <laughs> but a lot of people are good at griping about problems, but we don't we aren't as good at trying to think about what the solutions are. You know, yeah. we're good at sitting on our soapbox and pounding the table and saying this is what's wrong, but yeah. there's we gotta be trying to think of solutions. That's why I like you guys and your the conversations that y'all have, because everybody's so positive in that direction of searching mm. for solutions. Yeah. We're trying to, we're trying to. And I mean, I've gotten accused as recently as, as this week of being anti-trapping because I post some things on my social media um, that, that just show, you know, that it's not as cut and dry as a lot of people believe it to be. And that's a huge focus of this upcoming episode series. Um, 
but you know, I, I want people to really understand what we know and what we don't know about the ep- the efficacy of that as a solution for increasing reproduction of prey species. Um, and like with turkeys, as we will go into detail in, in this upcoming series, I, I hate to keep plugging it, but we talked a lot about <laughs> it. Um, I'm going to be listening to it as soon as it comes out. With, with turkeys, it's very far from settled science, but there's a lot of people out there that have done it and personally have you know noticed huge gains in reproduction as a result of it. But the reason that I oftentimes try to put predator control into the proper context is because I just feel like that issue um, is just so much more engaging to a lot of hunters. Like if you go on, you know, a Facebook group or a, or an online forum, put a post on there about a study that shows a positive effect of trapping. And then also, you know, same day, same time, put a post on there that shows a study that was recently, re- you know, released that showed that uh timber stand improvement increased, you know, brooding cover for turkeys by 34% or something like that. Which one's going to have more comments? Oh, the traffic. (laughs) (laughs) You could literally, when the the other thing, you could, that trapping study could improve nest, and we're obviously hypothetical here, but the trapping study could show a 1% bump, and the habitat one could show a 75% bump, and you would still just blow, the internet would melt over that (laughs) trapping study. And, and, you know, the uh, habitat wouldn't, it's just not as a popular of a topic, or maybe it's just not uh, one of those issues that people are, are in different space on. Like no, they all you, agree. you hit the head, nail on the head right there. Like that's been our, our issue too, is we posted some stuff about habitat and it just doesn't get watched that it's much. It's not an eye grabber. Mm. I mean, honestly, it's, a high stem, a photo of high stem count isn't an eye grabber. I mean, right? Not. It's like, oh, that's some thick forest. What am I going to look at that for? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. Like, but then you show, like that, but or then the 180-inch buck in a clover food yeah. plot. Like, that's yeah. what it's. Or a coyote in a trap or something. What's eye yeah, grabbing? Yeah, yeah. Well, the coyote in the trap is, not the well, high stem yeah. count forest. I, I consider myself a trapper and I love it. I've spent a lot of time doing it. I've got a lot of trapping equipment under my house right now. Um, and I think, and I think that's part of the reason that it gets so much attention because I mean, for me personally, do I want to go out and spend a, a Saturday running a trap line or do I want to spend a Saturday hacking, squirting trees? You know, no question. I want to go check those traps. Yeah. You get to interact <laughs> yeah. with animals. Yeah. You know, it's it's like that's what drives us as hunters. You know, like that's it's a, it's a form. Well, it's, it's a, a form it's of a, hunting. Yeah, and it's a game. I mean, it. Like, yeah. The gamesmanship of all of this, like it, it try, trying to get a coyote to step in a one inch <laughs> thing, like that. It's that hard. is a challenge. Yeah. And I appreciate really the challenge as much as anybody. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so we we tried to on, on this next episode series give as well rounded as a viewpoint on that, and I, I, based on the interactions we've had from the first bit of episodes, where it, it was only mentioned a couple of times, but it still was the thing that really blew up somehow. Uh, I feel like we're probably somehow. just going to make everybody <laughs> mad. I'm just trying to be objective, but I think what's going to happen is everybody's just going to be mad at us because we're trying to present the entire context. And and, uh, when Will and I have another one scheduled that we want to add into it because it came to our attention after we recorded the first few episodes that there is more data that has just come available 
from one of the leading scientists that completely turned us upside down again. I mean, it like our our ideas and where we were at. I mean, we moved a lot just going through that process. It challenged uh, challenged me quite a bit and my my thought process around predators and predator trapping and how they integrate with habitat and all this. Like it, that, I, I moved a lot through that process and learned a lot and, and grew as a scientist. And then we talked to to another guy and he said something and it was off the air. But then we realized we got to have him on the air to talk about it. <laughs> Completely turned yeah. me upside down again. Marcus, is if you have a prediction. If you haven't teased this enough already, I'm going to add one little more tidbit to it. And that's that basically we might be we might be having a conversation about some evidence that there are some turkey nests that are lost to predators that would have been lost anyway. Yeah, we we are we are saying they're lost to predators when they indeed were not potentially not lost because of predators. Uh, They would have just been lost. Mm -hmm. So, So. uh, but I, I don't know what that's going to look like yet, that conversation, but yeah. I got enough of it from the the uh, this researcher that it got me. It's gotten me shaken up a little bit. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a fun conversation. But, yeah, I can't but wait like, to listen to him. But like looping back on all this, guys, I mean, it's just it's not that it's not that we're anti trapping. Far from it. We're not anti predator control. It's just because for the reasons that we just talked about, we're just trying to shift the conversation to the most impactful practices that we have the most information on. And really trapping is not one of those right now. We don't, it's hard to, it's hard to make a recommendation pertaining to it when we don't have a lot of good data to show, you know? Um, yeah, and we we'd t- be we making recommendations about, based on anecdote. Right. But on that particular practice, especially for turkeys, it would be mostly the fact that there are landowners doing it that say it works really well. That that would be our source of data for the most part. I also think of it a lot when it comes to trapping specifically and, and all these topics in general. Like how can we get this to non-hunters? Because mm-hmm. we have to, ha- I, I really do believe that having non-hunters on our side, not anti-hunters, I'm talking non-hunters. Yeah. You know, if you can get well, non-hunters, yeah, it's to like eighty percent of the population. Right. Right? That's oh, a yeah. huge right, and we need those people uh, to be voting on legislation that affects your that's you know, what you're doing. They need to not be uh, calling the the fire department every time you try to do a prescribed <laughs> burnt. Like a, right. we need those people. Yeah, and that's a unfortunately the the predator trapping is one of those things that generally those non-hunters are they're not into that. Exactly. Yeah. I just think that's like, why if you go about it the way you guys are and that that brings this all the way around to kind of how we started and commending you all for the for your ability to communicate this stuff. Well, that is so, so important. And like I know it's a contentious topic, but if you really listen to these podcasts in the context that is discussed within them, you'll hear people that don't agree on mm-hmm. things on some things that are able to discuss these things in full context all the way through and Mm -hmm. then even come up with solutions together. I feel like just that communication process in itself is so valuable whenever you get into this stuff that is controversial and you guys are super objective in looking at data. Look, Mm -hmm. that's, 
that's why I'm fired up about what you all got going on with that podcast. And with all the guests that you've had thus far and the guests that you're going to have down the road is there's a lot of credibility with these people and mm -hmm. they're very good at discussing these issues that are quite contentious in a Facebook group or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you guys are good at getting those points across while providing the necessary context to do so. Mm hmm. I don't well, know, Warb. Uh, I think I'm just going to keep paying attention to the Facebook people. I, <laughs> <laughs> I hear what I you're saying. It's all right there. All the answers are right there. Uh, I hear, yeah, I hear what you're saying, tonight. but no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, Marcus and I have had this conversation several times that, you know, at the outset of at the outset of this podcast, you know, we were kind of at its inception we were, were really focused on trying to get information to people. Right. But then as it, as things started to progress and we were having these interviews and conversations, I think Marcus was the one that brought it up first is that um, if, if the net result of this podcast is that we bring a bunch of people together, I think that's really even better and more impactful than any kind of information that we can disseminate, you know, on habitat management, predators, you know, season frameworks, whatever. Um, yeah. and, and just, you, you know, just by bringing these people together to have a conversation, if that kind of unites us to try to help turkeys, I mean, what more could you ask for? Yeah. I feel mm -hmm. like it's super cliche, but it is, <laughs> I, it, it is, but, but I mean, I, I, yeah, yesterday Warb, I went on a rant about how hunters are against hunters and how, when I see these things, I get mad. We were having a meeting yesterday and I was just feeling flustered at, you know, reading the Facebook comments or mm. whatever, YouTube comments, and just seeing these hunters against hunters. And I couldn't agree more. I think bringing people together as, as cliche as it may be is so important and trying to focus on that and have these conversations is really, really important. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing to me, we go to social media a lot and, uh, it's set up for interaction. So I, I had this conversation with a bunch of people online. And it's like, you know what? I, I have decided now that if somebody posts something that I don't like, I'm not going to interact with it. Yeah. And then if somebody posts something that I support, I don't care what they've been doing, but if they have something that I support, I'm going to try to blow that up. And if we all did that, then we would all be united in pushing forward good information. But what ends up happening is people interact and comment and share things that they don't like and, you know, want to get in an argument. And then those things get all of the attention. And then it gives this impression that we don't, that we're all like on opposite sides and fighting when we actually, a lot of us are in the middle space where we agree on a lot. And we may have a little bit of disagreement on how we get there or, or which, what's really the problem or whatever, but we all are pretty united otherwise. And uh, if we all kind of took that approach and it's like, you know what, when I see something I really like, I'm going to blow that thing up and uh, I'm going to ignore the things that are, you know, clearly uh, false or trying, you know, trying to stir interaction or whatever <laughs> yeah. and it, we, as, I feel like as a community, we'd all be a lot better off if we would kind of take that that approach to this absolutely yeah the things on social media they pop up in front of your face are pretty much just meant to make you 
pull some sort of negative emotion generally. (laughs) Well, I think as a community, we could change that algorithm to make it work for us instead of against us. (laughs) I'd like to think so. So, so Marcus, uh, on your to-do list, after we solve the turkey decline, you're going to figure out how to change human nature. Is that what I'm understanding? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) You know, the the thing I think about this a lot, and it, it just comes into crystal focus, for me, when I have, you know, interact with my own kids and I'm, it's sort of like a science experiment for me, like on human <laughs> behavior, because I'm not really inserting a lot of the behavior that is just instinctual to them. But th- like, take your kids to a zoo. Like, oh, oh, that's cool. There's a giraffe. But if I get to feed the giraffe, we have now gone exponentially more cool. You know, like we <laughs> instinctually just want to feed stuff. And that probably plays into why we focus on food. Yeah. And our management, you know, like those kinds of things that it, it really is interesting how our behavior manifests at a larger scale when you start taking a step back. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we probably better let these guys go, Zach. They got yeah. a, they got lots more important things to do other than <laughs> talk to us, probably. Well, I don't know about that, but I well, this sure is more appreciate fun. you guys and, and what you're doing <laughs> and having us. Well, we appreciate you guys as well. Really, really stoked about the conversation. It went well, and I really enjoyed it. Learned a lot of things as well. Keep cranking the podcast out. They're good. Yeah, thanks, guys. Will do. We appreciate it, and thanks again for having us on. Absolutely. Thank you. See y'all. See ya.